Um, the readings today taken from 2 Samuel. And we're just going to read uh, chapter 4, verse 4, initially. Uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Then if we move to 2 Samuel 9, and verses 1 to 13. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul who was name, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he, and he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king, David sent, uh, then king David sent and brought him from the house of Mashir to the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore you to you all the land of Saul and your, your father. And you shall eat it at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both, both his feet. On the way down to, uh, to escape this afternoon, um, we're in the car with Josh and Daniel, and, uh, and Josh said to me, he said, Dad, what are you speaking on today? And, um, and I said, well, I'm, I'm speaking on, um, on, on suffering. And he said, do, do I suffer? And I said, well, yeah, everybody will suffer in life. And uh, he said, yeah, that's right, actually, because my friend Seb, he nearly dropped something heavy on his toe and it nearly broke it. Um, and so Josh, even at nine years old, understands suffering. And the news that we've seen this week just, I think, brings suffering into more focus than at any point. And, and I can genuinely say this. I've known for about three weeks what I was going to speak on today. But then you get news like this week, the events of this week, and it changes things. You know, we hear of horrific murders and shootings. And there's all the media attention. Everybody focused in on this event. But then... The picture that we've got, we've got up today, some of you might remember this from the earthquake um, weeks ago in, in Haiti. Um, the, the boy's name, I think, was, was Kiki, I think. Um, and he'd been buried for seven and a half days. 
and then pulled out alive after seven and a half days. And this is a boy. Does that boy look sad? It's amazing, isn't it? Kiki's got just this biggest smile. And so we have this title of, of, of joyful suffering. And that's the one thing that I want us to take away from today. You might think I'm mad, but I want you to see that you can actually experience joy in the middle of suffering. That's the one thing from today, that we can experience joy in the middle of suffering. And, and, but when I say things like that, some of you could immediately think, oh, Rich, that's a bit, of a, it's a bit of an oxymoron, because those two things, they're just not compatible. It's impossible to, to take suffering and to take joy and to bring them together and experience joy in the middle of it. It just, it just can't be done. But I actually think that it, it can be done, but it all depends on, on your worldview. And I, I'm just going to put two camps forward, and that, that is that there's a group of people who, who live life, and they're in camp one. And camp one says that God does not exist. There is no God. And then there are people in camp two who say, God does exist. There's two camps. God exists, God doesn't exist. But to those who say God doesn't exist, all I'm going to say really is, if you're in camp one, why do you care about suffering? <laughs> why, are you, you know, why are you bothered? If there's no God, why are you interested in, in six million Jews? Why, why are you bothered? Why are you bothered about Bin Laden? Why does it matter to you? Why do you care about Pol Pot and Stalin? Why do you care about 9-11 or 7-11? Why do you care about life? Because there's no God. And if there is no God, and we are just a random bunch of chemicals thrown together by random chance over billions of years of evolution with no rhyme or reason, with no value, no dignity, no worth, why do you care? It shouldn't really bother you that if a guy goes out this week and is a bit upset that his brother got £25,000, he didn't, so I'm going to go around shooting people because they've got no value, why are you bothered? Why? Why do you care? But I know already, as I say those things, there's some of you looking at me really bad already. <laughs> Rich, how can you stand there and say that? Some of you might want to fight me already. I don't know. But you hate what I'm saying. You hate that I'm just dismissive of suffering. You hate that I don't care about life. You hate the fact that I say it doesn't matter if someone shoots someone through the head with a bullet. You hate me already. And the reason is, the reason that you feel like that is because you know that deep down that we're not meant to suffer. There's something screaming inside your heart that's saying this just, is just not right. And culture, actually, is so anti-suffering when we actually get into it in a little bit more detail. Your heart screams that suffering's wrong. Culture says that suffering's wrong. So we want to do everything we can to escape suffering. Now, how much billions and billions and billions of pounds spent in the drug industry each year to find a cure for this, a cure for that? And rightly so. It's not wrong that we should take what God's given us and be able to use it to get medicine. But all we do is spend time wanting cures, investing money in taking away that suffering. There's a cure for this, a cure for that. You know, there's a back sufferer. You know, there's, mo there's billions of back products in the market. You know, this special seat. Have this, have that. 
Let's take away that back pain. Suffering's not good. And that's what we do as a culture. We don't want suffering. Yet on the other hand, 200,000 babies murdered in the womb every year in this country. And we're not bothered. We bothered about, I think, 12 people, was it, murdered this week in Whitehaven? We bothered about that. But we're not bothered about the 3,000 babies or something that were murdered this week. I, it's a real life. But culture doesn't place any value on it. Because it's not born into the world yet. It's just a bunch of chemicals. Let's flush it away. See, I, I, I don't get culture sometimes. On one hand, we hate suffering. On the other hand, we just basically say, let's carry on. Let's carry on doing what we're doing. You know, and we wave our fists at God. And we say that there's no God because of suffering. But you see, you can't, you can't have both. If there's no God, then life's just cruel and painful. You're going to drop dead. Game over. Forget about it. Stop moaning and get on with it. But when we say there is a God, life's still full of pain and suffering. So there's no God It's painful and suffering. With God, there's painful and suffering. And so we get all confused in our thinking. But the big problem is, the root cause of all our confusion is that when we say we have a world with God, with a loving God in charge of all things, and we still suffer, and we still hurt, there's a deep-rooted problem. And that problem is this, that we can't see any possible good in suffering. We reason... That a loving God could not possibly have any purpose for good in suffering. Therefore, God's got it all wrong. That's the bottom line. We don't believe that there's any possible good, any possible joy in suffering. We just don't believe it. But I want to encourage us now, as we look a little bit deeper at this, that just work with me, just come with me a little bit. There is good in suffering. There is, but we've just got to look a little bit deeper to find it. And, you know, maybe you think, Rich, this is the longest introduction already to a sermon. We've not even had the text up. I don't even know where we're going. But I want us to get into the Bible now and put some foundations into what I'm saying. So I'm stood up front today saying that I believe that there is good in suffering. Probably get shot most places for saying that. There is good, though, in what we're going to look at. And the first text that we looked at, Martin Redford's, was... Uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 4, and um, we're looking at this, this, this little boy, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth basically, is, I think he was five or six when he went, uh, five years old when, when this happened. And we have this event that, that news has come along of, of the death of Jonathan and Saul, and, and this nurse basically has, has picked up Mephibosheth, and she's run, and she's dropped this boy, and he's ended up crippled in both feet. This, is, this is, is in isolation, and you look at that, this is a tragic day. This is a, a young boy, innocent boy, many would argue, done nothing wrong in his life, didn't deserve this to happen, yet he's experienced something horrific at such a young age. And my question here already is this, is why? Come on, guys, do we ask this question every single day? Why? Why has this happened? Why has this happened to Mephibosheth? Why has it happened this week in Whitehaven? Why? And when I try and answer this, 
you're going to think, Rich, you're a bit of a politician because you're not going to give me a full answer. Well, all I'm going to be able to do is point you to the best possible answer I can give you, an honest answer, a truthful answer from the Bible. And then we've got to come to terms with the things that we looked at. And why does it happen? Bottom line, number one, reason number one is this, that mankind has committed cosmic treason against a holy and just God. When we look at the Bible, we've got to look at it in its entirety from beginning to end. This Bible is about the history of the universe. It's about the glory of God and the depravity of man. And then there's an event that takes place in Genesis chapter 3 called the fall of man. Where basically we'd seen in Genesis 1 and 2, this great God had made a perfect creation. He was delighted in all that he'd made. He was in relationship with mankind, humanity that he had made. And whether we understand it or not, like it or not, there were representatives there for mankind, Adam and Eve. Whether you want to get all bent out of shape about, was this a real event? Was this creation? Was this evolution? All these types of things, we've got to pack them up for a minute. Because the reality is an event took place where mankind had been told, basically, you can live with God, you can be with me, you can enjoy being with me, everything is good. God had seen all that he'd made and it was very good. But you know what? Mankind had a problem. Mankind just wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. Mankind didn't trust God. And they committed an act of treason. Sin. We can talk about Satan and the devil coming in there as well. And we have these pictures in our heads, don't we, of of Adam and Eve taking this apple and biting an apple and fig leaves and everything else going on. But this is a real event that took place. And at the heart of it is mankind saying, God, get away from me. I don't want you. I'm God. I'm going to live my life, my way. But mankind knew, they'd been warned by God, if you choose that path, there's one consequence, and that's suffering and death. They were told, they were warned, they were our representatives. Don't go down that road. If you go down that road, you will suffer and die. And where are we now in 2010 or wherever in Escape? You know, with all our advances in education and knowledge about everything good, What are we suffering? We're suffering with life, we're suffering with decay, and we're suffering with death. Nothing has changed because of this act of cosmic treason. And then we suffer with the fact that an all-loving God, an all-powerful God could allow it to happen. We kind of turn the table on God. How could you allow this to happen? If you knew it would happen, which he did, and he purposed it. How can a loving God purpose such a tragic event? And I thought, how am I going to explain this to, to people to get their heads around? And all I could think of, you know, if I go down the snow zone into the snow slope and, and, I, and I get a perfectly white, crisp snowball, I know it's the middle of summer, but we've all done this, haven't we, in winter, we get a really good snowball and you sit making it for five minutes and it just crunches up, doesn't it? Gets a bit icy, perfect white, icy snowball. And Danny, my, 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 I don't know why I picked on Danny, Danny's down there in the snow zone with me and I kind of just love this snowball perfectly white snowball and it smacks Danny right in the eye and it's, it's probably going to hurt it's probably going to rugby tackle me afterwards but it's hit Danny in the eye gets a black eye it hurts doesn't it this white snowball has given him a black eye but then you know that's just something that's happened but people are okay with that maybe I'm looking at him I think we're okay with that but if I've got a syringe filled it with black ink with a needle on the end and walked up to Danny and stuck it in his eye and injected that ink into his face. That's evil. That's painful. 
that's full of hatred. And that's the only small picture I can give you. That an all-loving God can purpose something in love compared to an evil, hurtful God who would purpose something to hurt his children. We are responsible for this act of treason. We're the ones that committed to it, committed it. And when we respond to God, when we blame God, when we hate God, all that does is just reflect the fact that it's true, that we have rebelled against him. Because in our hearts, we want to be God. We just want to be our gods. And so we're left with a choice. We can either run away, like we did in the Garden of Eden, we can keep running from God. Or I pray we can do the latter and just stop running for a minute. Stop running today and let's look at embracing God in our suffering. So just three things that I want us to go through now. We've looked at why this has happened. I'm saying to you guys that you're responsible for your sin. You're responsible for your suffering. But we're not leaving it there. First thing is that we've seen an overwhelming reality of suffering. And we've seen it in the life of Mephibosheth. News changed things in Mephibosheth's life. News of death came into his life that caused this event to happen, that caused him to be crippled. What news have you experienced in your life that's changed it and shaped it? You know, I'd not been a Christian long, and one of my best friends who was a Christian and helped me come and find Jesus, I got a phone call to say that Nick had been knocked off his mountain bike in Rutland Water. He'd been killed by joyriders basically riding along and just wiped him out. News of death changed my life. You know, but we've all, I'm not unique in that. How many people today have had news that they've done a scan and we found something? We found a lump. You've got cancer. You've got weeks to live. News happens like that all the time. You don't need me to go through a big long list of things in life today. You know as you sat there today, you know how you've suffered. You know what news you've experienced. And all I want to say to you is, do you have peace today? Do you have peace as you found out about this news? As you experience death in your life, do you have peace over it? For many of us, we don't have peace. We feel alone and we feel isolated. And I don't know whether Mephibosheth felt alone and isolated in his life. I don't know if he was scared. I don't know if he was abandoned and terrified. But I know we've all felt like that. We felt fearful and scared and abandoned and alone. And I want to say this first up, that you are not alone in your suffering. You're not alone. And just as, 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 as Mephibosheth maybe felt alone, King David was actively looking for someone to bless. God today, the living God, is actively now, as I speak this very second, looking for someone to bless. He's searching for you. You're not alone today if you're hurting. Hang on in your suffering because you are not alone. Because this is the second thing, that we're living under the gaze of the king of love. If we can go on to the next verses, we see this as we read, that David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Zimba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Zimba, your servant? He replied, 
the king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Zebra answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Zebra answered, he is in the house of Machia, son of Amiel in Lodabar. The king is actively looking for someone to bless. The king's heart is full of blessing. And I want to ask you one thing. Who is the active person in this story? Who is the one that's moving? Is it Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth's crippled. He's in darkness. Maybe alone. The king... The king is the one that's active. The king is the one that's searching for someone to bless. And it's the same for us today. God is active. God is searching. So you're not alone. And God is actively today searching for you in your suffering. It's this, we've got to get away from this picture that, that culture's given us that maybe if there is a God, maybe he's a clockmaker. God, have some of you heard about this? That way back when there was a God and he decided to kind of, boom, get things going. And then just sat, I don't know, what's he doing? Is he sat back somewhere having a, having a Starbucks, watching it all kick off, distant and remote from it? No, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is active. The God of the Bible is searching. The God of the Bible is looking for you in your suffering. So if you sat here today thinking, God, please come and find me. He hears you. And he's working things out in your life. And there are days when you feel a million miles from that. There are days when you just feel absolutely isolated and alone and in pain and in tears. And you just think, God, you just are not there. But I want to encourage you that he is there. The king of love is there. And you're living underneath the gaze of the king of love who is actively searching for you in your suffering. And the third thing I want us to see is this, that the king brings restoration and transformation. If we can go on to the next sheet, please, Aim. I think verse 7 I'm looking for. When Mephibosheth gets into the presence of the king, David, King David says to him, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. I don't think we can fully comprehend and grasp today what we're reading and what's going on. But we're reading about a guy here who was abandoned, alone, in isolation, descendant, if you like. He's got some royal blood in his, in his life. He's a descendant of the king. But now King David's on the throne, ruling in power and authority a great nation with abundant possessions and belongings and wealth and fame. And Mephibosheth. A crippled boy, but now a crippled man, brought into the presence of the king. And he knows his life. He knows what he's done. He knows what he's about. And he says to the king, what are you doing? I'm a dead dog. That's how he valued his life. I'm just a dead dog. 
And how many of us today can relate to that? How many of us have felt like that in life? I'm nothing. I'm a failure. There's nothing special about me. I don't have Simon Cowell giving me the big thumbs up, giving me the vote. I'm a crippled dead dog living in poverty while the world seems to pass me by with all its wealth and prosperity and success. I'm just a crippled dead dog. We know what Mephibosheth's feeling. We can relate to this. But then the king turns round and says, you will always eat at my table. <laughs> we need to get this. This is not some kind of day out down at the palace. You know, when some people, you know, they get... You know, they do so much with the life, don't they? They get the letter saying that you've got, you've got your knighthood or you've got your MBE, you've got your OBE or your CBE or your damehood or whatever it might be. You've got your letter, you've got your pass. You're down the palace for the day. You get to see the queen and you get to go into this whole building and you obviously get told don't steal ashtrays or glasses or anything else. And you get to meet the queen. To, and she bestows some honor on you. You know, but then by 3.15, you show on the back door and you're out, aren't you? Thanks for coming. There's your medal. See you later. But this is the king saying to Mephibosheth, you'll always eat with me. Every day that I dine in my palace, you're going to be with me. You're going to be happy with me. You're going to be in my presence. You're not going to be scratching around. What are you going to do today? What am I going to eat today? It's just constant blessing. And Mephibosheth, I love him for this. He recognizes that he has no merit for his blessing. Doesn't he? Who am I but a dead dog? And we need to learn from Mephibosheth today. Because our problem is in, in culture and in church, we feel it's about performance-related. It's performance-related pay, isn't it, at the workplace? You know, how many of you have done through your performance and development review process? All been there, got that t-shirt. You've got to score yourself. You've got to rate yourself, and then your manager rates you, and then your manager's managers rate you, and then you get given more targets to improve, to make yourself better. Culture does it all the time. But do you know what? Church does it. Church does it. Do you know what? If I can be a better Christian, I wish I had some money for every time someone said that to me. I'm not good enough. I need to know more. I need to read more. I need to pray more. I need to learn more. Then God will love me more. No, he won't. You're a dead dog. There's nothing that you can do in your life to earn merit and favor from the king. Nothing. How are we going to impress the king of the universe? I got up at six, God, this morning to pray. Oh, well done, mate. I've been singing over the universe 24-7. We've just got to get this in our stupid heads. We can't earn favor from the king. And when we begin to see that like Mephibosheth, liberation and freedom begins to come. When we see that we can't earn our way out of it, we see that we're not alone in our suffering, we see that God is searching for us, we know we can't earn our way out of it. And when we begin to put this together we can actually begin to experience joy in our suffering. This is where we started out, and this is where I'm finishing. How does it all work? How do we put these pieces of the jigsaw together? And the answer is this. We have to look towards God's 
true king. Surprise, surprise, he's called Jesus Christ. We have to look to the king. To find joy, we first got to look at the ultimate act of suffering. To begin to have our own peace, we've got to be able to look towards Jesus and his suffering. Because unlike David, unlike King David, Jesus Jesus gave up everything to show God's mercy. King David blessed Mephibosheth, but he didn't give up his palace. He didn't give up his throne. He didn't give up all his belongings, his possessions and everything. He didn't give up his servants. He didn't give up his praise and adoration that he got from his people. He didn't give up any of that. He remained in power. He remained in prosperity. But King Jesus, the creator of this universe, the co-creator with Father, Son and Spirit, the star breather, the one who brought everything to life, the one who for all of time has been in the presence of 10,000 times 10,000 angels where people have rejoiced and praised him. He left the throne of heaven He left it. He gave it up. He counted it as nothing to come into this world. To be born a man, the God-man, fully God, yet fully man. With no possessions, with nothing to his name. Nothing in his looks and appearance that makes us think he's amazing. You know, get white Jesus out of your heads. Get flowing blonde locks out of your head. This is just a man the Bible tells us, a nondescript person. Middle Eastern carpenter. Swung a hammer every day. Calluses on his hands. The God-man. He came to this earth and did something that we could not do back in the Garden of Eden. And that was live a perfect life in the presence of the king. He lived out a perfect life. And at the end of it, at the end of it, for making a statement, he was God. For living the life that said he was God. This is a man who did amazing miracles. The man who who spoke and the sea became calm. The man who raised dead people to life. The man who healed the sick. The man who lived a life like no other. At the end of it, he said he was God and for that he was murdered. On a horrific Roman cross, he was physically smashed to pieces and tortured. Spat on, kicked, punched, nailed. And that's just a physical pain. Because ultimately, he took on the darkness of sin. The Bible says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Basically, we swap places. And he was smashed to pieces, punished in our place. He became a dead dog. He became a dead dog in the presence of his father so that we could put on royal robes, which we do not deserve. So that one day, so that one day when this suffering, when this pain ends, we get to be in the presence of the King. We get to dine at the table with Jesus in heaven, in glory, every single day for the whole of eternity. We need to begin to get this. That way back in the Garden of Eden, when mankind sinned and rebelled, an all-loving, all-powerful, all-beautiful God had a purpose for that. And that purpose would result, at the end of it, in the praise and glory of Him, the worship of Him, 
And there wouldn't just be two people there representing mankind. At the end of it, there will be billions of people there representing mankind. Billions of worshippers, not needing votes from Cowell, but billions of worshippers who were there because they didn't deserve it. Because Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, freely bestowed blessing upon his children and said, you will be with, be with me in paradise. The Bible tells us that there's a new day coming, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more backache, no more kneeache, no more arthritis, no more glycoma, no more AIDS, no more shootings, no more MS, no more anything, no more anything except joy upon joy upon joy in the presence of the king that's what life's like lived in the presence of god in this world when we get this in our hearts when we embrace this we experience joy in suffering why because we know that life isn't now it's not all about today it's about what's to come and the glory to be revealed. Christians live differently to this world because they don't belong to this world. And if you're a Christian clinging too tightly to this world, if you're clinging on to the things of this world and wanting success and fame and fortune and love and wealth and prosperity, you need to let it go. Because until you let it go, you can't see what really matters. And what really matters is Jesus. This world, this universe is about him made by him for him for his glory for his name for his fame and honor and i tell you guys when you embrace that when you see that when you experience that life changes life is transformed does suffering end no does a pain end no but you experience joy in the middle of it and one day you're welcomed home and jesus himself says welcome home good and faithful servant enter in Come and share with me in paradise. With all my heart, I pray and I plead that you would look to him today. And let's be a people who are dismissed in joy and happiness because we know the king. If you're not there today, if you've got questions, if, you've got, if you can't make sense of what I'm saying, if you're hurting, you're in pain, come and share, let's talk. And let's see if we can point the way to Jesus.